my dad actually had Chevron stores here in Atlanta. He started them so long ago that it was when they were gas stations, not convenience stores. They didn't have the food and beverage part of the store yet. And he started selling Twinkies with the gas. And that was kind of in Atlanta, one of the first people to be selling uh, food and drink and have it kind of convert from the gas station to the convenience store. And so he's the Twinkie King. That's what my mom and him say. I don't know how much uh, truth there is to that. Hey folks, Matt Hunsaker here, welcoming you back to the State Tax Show. Today we talked to some of my M&A colleagues in part one of a series on state and local tax issues in M&A. How come no one told me? Uh, well, because we thought you were on a call or something. Well, I guess we have a new family member. For the last year or so, about 90% of my conversations with the kids have been about dogs. My wife has some allergies, and so we have been looking at hypoallergenic golden doodles. You know, the popular mix between a poodle and a golden retriever. Grandma took the kids to look at one at the local pet store. And guess what the price tag was? $8,900. Can you believe that? When I was a kid, dogs were free. You just got a puppy from a neighbor or grabbed one from the pound. Luckily, though, we were able to find a more reasonably priced golden doodle from a breeder in Idaho, who, coincidentally, is from a small town where my mom was born. Recording podcasts with a yappy puppy is going to be interesting. Speaking of big-time purchases, today we are kicking off a two-part series, hopefully just two parts, on state and local tax issues in mergers and acquisitions. A lot of you have been begging for me to cover this topic, and in particular, a lot of you are concerned that you only see transactions on the periphery if the business people happen to ask you about salt issues. So in today's episode, I sit down virtually with a couple of my mergers and acquisition colleagues, or M&A as the cool kids call it, to talk at a real high level just about how deals work and how the salt puzzle piece fits in. Erica Savoda is the daughter of the famed Twinkie King of Atlanta and has tons of experience in M&A working out of our Atlanta office. Ryan Gorshi is my partner right here in Dallas, and we were both on the team that opened up this office several months ago. Ryan is incredible. He literally knows everything. I mean, everything that is going on in the world of M&A transactions. I'm not joking. Here's our conversation. Eric and Ryan, thanks for hopping into the virtual studio today. Thanks for having us. Yes, happy to be here. Now, my listeners are in-house state tax professionals. They typically aren't deal lawyers. 
they may get asked a few questions during a transaction, but they don't really get to see how the sausage is made when it comes to M&A transactions. So could you give us a high level overview of I don't know, the anatomy or flow of a typical M&A transaction? Yeah, sure. We divide the world into sort of what I'll call strategic and financial acquirers. And that's not my term. That's that's the term that, you know, every deal lawyer and, and investment banker uses. But essentially it's it's companies that are acquiring competitors. Those are sort of strategic buyers. And then there's acquirers like private equity investors and those are, are financial buyers. So it starts with, you know, deal parties coming to a consensus on on why an acquisition or, or sale makes sense. They will typically negotiate uh, at a high level the deal structure and usually the purchase price to make sure that people don't waste a lot of time and money uh, and find out that they actually don't have agreement on the material facts. Uh, and then, you know, once that is that structured, sometimes it's very formal in a term sheet and sometimes it's just people kind of handshake deal. They will engage often advisors, including lawyers and financial advisors, investment bankers, and then those advisors will start examining the, the target, the seller, and, and determining its real value and the real risks. And that's the due diligence phase. And so that could be very fulsome, reading every contract, looking through every tax return, and that's level of diligence. Uh, and sometimes it's, it's more cursory. And then that information is usually processed and will be used to form the purchase agreement, which is the definitive agreement by which the the buyer you know acquires the target company, and that sometimes goes quickly, and sometimes there's a lot of back and forth in the negotiation of it. So then you know you sign that up, and in most cases, not always, the closing is then deferred. So there's some period of time after you've signed where you know you get a bunch of stuff done, typically governmental approvals and and those sorts of things. And then you go to a closing and a closing is, is you know, essentially where, where the property is changing hands and cash changes hands. And that's the anatomy of a deal at about a hundred thousand foot level. That's really helpful to our listeners. I think that even though that is a hundred thousand foot look, I think they'll make them more effective on those occasions when they interact with their lawyers. You had mentioned due diligence and Eric, I'd like to hear from you as to why state and local taxes should be a meaningful part of a company's due diligence? Yeah, great question, Matt. And it's one of those things where it's really important early on in a deal to understand exactly what the target does and where it does it. So is it selling products and goods or is it delivering services? In what states is it doing that? And just understanding the magnitude of those operations and where they're happening will certainly inform any kind of state and local tax analysis and asking the right questions to make sure that you're understanding, you know, the level of aggressiveness that the target may be taking on state and local tax issues. So are they filing in every possible state where they might have a potential obligation to pay or have they taken you know, a more aggressive stance on that and maybe done a selective process based on materiality. And so it's important to really understand 
what they're currently doing and how that may jive with what the buyer intends to do after the closing. So many times, once that curtain is peeled back a bit on state taxes, targets discover that they have a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I often see this a lot with tech companies where you know, they're just trying to survive early on and they don't pay a lot of attention to their state tax footprint and things blow up and then they want to cash out. And when we get into due diligence, then all of a sudden we discover that there's a, a lot of hair on the deal that has to be dealt with. Let's say we get past diligence though, and we want to put the deal to paper in a purchase agreement. What are some of the key tax sections that you would expect to see in a purchase agreement? In most purchase agreements, and almost all of them, you're going to have something called representations and warranties. And these are essentially statements uh, by the deal parties about factual matters uh, pertaining to their operations, their capital structure. And so you'll see the, uh, a whole section in, in almost all purchase agreements, you know, no matter their form, that deals with tax representations. And this is the way that a buyer both allocates risk between the seller and also understands that its diligence is correct. And so on taxes, you're going to see things like you've paid all of your your taxes that are owed. And when I say it allocates risk is that you sometimes will have somebody say, well, I think we have, but I don't know if some random jurisdiction assessed us the tax and we didn't pay. And so you know, the buyer will say, well, we still want you to make that rep because if you didn't and we find out it's a problem, it should be your risk. But so, you know, you'll have taxes paid, all your returns are filed. It'll talk about the tax status of the target and its subsidiaries. It'll give the buyer an understanding of, of what risks are out there, that their diligence was done correctly. And then it'll actually get into the allocation of risk. And so what you'll often see is indemnification. In private deals, you don't see this in public deals because it's too hard with the dispersed shareholders. But in indemnification, you essentially say if there's a problem, right, somebody's gonna gonna pay us back for it. And so a lot of these reps, if they turn out to be false, right, if if Nova Scotia assessed you taxes and you didn't pay it, and the rep is false, the seller will have to pay money back and indemnify the buyer for some of those losses. And then you know there's some other provisions about allocating taxes because in most transactions, you're, you're taking over this business, right? So if you're in the middle of a tax year, there's sort of taxes that have accrued, but they haven't been paid. So you'll allocate these, you know, this tax burden between the two parties. And then there's also allocations of how much the assets are worth. And you see this in asset deals because it'll be a problem if I buy you know, a bunch of widgets from you and I say on my tax return that they were worth X and you say they're worth Y. So there'll be provisions where, you know, typically the accountants and and the advisors uh, and the deal parties will get together and say, look, we all agree that this is what the individual constituent parts of this transaction are worth. When it comes to allocations, I think that it's really important to understand what kind of a deal you have, whether you're dealing with an asset sale or an equity sale, because that can really drive how those allocations are laid out in the agreement. Yep. And this is where it's really important to involve the state tax people because the federal tax people may say this is going to be treated as an asset sale for federal income tax purposes because it's a disregarded entity. But on the state tax side, there's a number of jurisdictions that say we don't 
have a concept of a disregarded entity. So a lot of times you have to kind of have this uh, weird combination of asset sale allocations as well as your more typical income or gross receipt type allocations. And those can be left out a lot of times by the, the federal tax people if they don't really understand the different treatment that the states offer. Yeah, I think that happens a lot, actually. And, and I, you know, I can tell you that, that state and local issues, as a, as a non-tax deal professional, they are, are trickling up and becoming you know, more material and people are paying more attention to them. But you know, in a lot of transactions, when the, the deal professionals think of taxes, they're pretty much thinking exclusively of federal taxes. Now, the purchase agreement doesn't just carve up tax liability for the target company. But the transaction itself can trigger its own set of taxes. And typically, I've seen those in purchase agreement lumped into a broad heading of transfer taxes, which can include sales taxes if you're, if, you know, if it's an asset deal and you're selling assets are subject to sales tax, or it can include real property recordation taxes or a host of other taxes. Erica, how are those taxes typically handled in a purchase agreement? Yeah, it's definitely one of those issues that is often negotiated depending on the scale and significance of what those transfer taxes look like based on the facts. So a lot of times we see this become more of a hotly contested item where the transfer taxes are relatively high. So if there's real property changing hands in a state where there's pretty high transfer taxes, that's a situation where we want to make sure we're out ahead of the issue and advising clients about how much that looks like in terms of dollars and whether it makes sense to offer to split it at the beginning or suggest that the seller bear all of it. Sometimes the buyer will take it. And this also is, you know, goes alongside the kind of package of rights and points that you're going over in a deal. So maybe the purchase price negotiation went a certain way and one party feels like they have more room or less room to give. And then that's where this transfer tax question can come up. I agree with that, Erica. And then I think one thing that's important to point out, you know, for non-deal professionals is there's sort of the allocation of these transfer taxes by statute. And then there's the allocation by contract. Right. For tax professionals, you know, if the statute says the seller, when they sell these assets, must pay these taxes, it isn't always the case that the seller will economically bear that burden. You know, you need to make sure that the draftspersons on the deal documents are allocating that risk correctly. A lot of times when I get involved in deals, it's six hours before closing. And someone asks me, what the heck is a tax clearance letter? And how do I get it in the next six hours? The issue here is that a lot of times buyer side lawyers assume that if you're dealing with an asset sale, then the seller's tax liabilities stay with the seller. But most states have some form of successor liability statute that makes the buyer liable for the seller's taxes, unless you jump through some hoops and notify the state of the sale and then get a tax clearance letter, or sometimes it'll be called the statement of no tax due. And if you don't jump through those hoops, then that liability will follow the assets. So my question for you guys is, when should the buyer lawyers start looking into that issue? 
before we negotiate the purchase agreement. I mean, I, you know, I'm being a little bit flippant, but I think that the way for circumscribing all of these risks is starting to understand them early. Get involved if you're the tax professional and you know the deal is going on early and understand it so you can advise people, you know, like me, who probably is the guy who calls you and says, how do we get this tax clearance letter? So um, far you haven't, but I'm I'm waiting for that day. Give it, give it time. One way to force the issue early, in my experience, is to make sure that you're putting the tax clearance certificate on that closing checklist. Mm-hmm. And every opportunity you have to talk with seller's counsel about what's outstanding and what you're waiting for to get to a closing, that issue is coming up and you're asking about status. Have you requested it? Make sure they understand it can have some lead time on there, especially in certain states. Yeah, I think that's one of the problems is people think that this is just something that the seller can pull out of their pocket, but you have to get this out of the government's hands. And that can take weeks. It can take months. A lot of times you don't know. And especially during COVID right now with the staffing issues with the governments, you really don't know when that thing's going to actually show up. So you got to get moving on pretty quickly. Now, Eric, let's just assume that we made it through closing and everything went well. What kind of agreements might you have to deal with after the closing? There can be sales tax on transition services agreements, which Matt, I know you can speak to uh, in much more detail than I know of, and also tax sharing agreements, especially in the JV context. Yeah, those transition service agreements are really an easy place for clients to get tripped up because they're, they're used to paying their employees and there's no sales tax on that. But then they enter into these transition service agreements and now their employees are providing services to third parties for consideration. And you can imagine the surprise that they feel when they find out that all of these payments that they're getting to reimburse for their employees' costs can be subject to sales tax and and no one really contemplated that. Yeah, and the other thing we see come up uh, post-closing, which you may or may not have anticipated at the time of closing, is audits that may relate to a pre-closing period, maybe over a straddle, or maybe all post-closing, but you need some records that might have been prior to your ownership to fully respond to those audit requests. So in the purchase agreement, we like to see a pretty clear outline of who's responsible for audits and how that process will work. We've covered a lot of ground here, and we've kept it pretty high level. But let me finish it off with this question. As M&A lawyers, what are some of the key takeaways that you would like your colleagues on the deal side and also clients to understand when it comes to state taxes and transactions? I would say that one of the the key things and uh, for, for state and local tax issues is get the right people involved very early. These issues can, they can be hidden or at least unknown to to non-tax professionals, and they can be material. There's nothing worse in a deal negotiation process than when at the last minute, somebody raises their hand and says, here's a big problem. And a lot of those problems are surmountable. But in that 11th hour, when people have deal fatigue, that can derail a lot of very good transactions. And having the time and the right people involved from the get-go can make the process work much more smoothly. Yeah, I I completely agree with uh, everything Ryan just said. And 
would say that these salt issues are the kind of thing you often can get a sense of early on and understand problems, if any, and what the uh, solution or deliverable is to get everyone comfortable with the level of risk that may or may not exist and making sure that diligence has been done to everyone's satisfaction. Well, Erica and Ryan, thank you so much for joining today and sharing some of your insight from the deal side. This will be very informative to our state and local tax folks who may not get to see exactly how deals work. So thanks for joining. Of course. Thanks for having me. Yes. Thanks for having us. Well, that was a great overview for those of you unfamiliar with the world of M&A. Next week, I dive into the weeds to talk about some practical salt considerations that you should be evaluating, hopefully, before entering into an M&A transaction. Until then, this is Matt Hunsaker for The State Tax Show. The State Tax Show podcast is produced by Baker and Hostetler, LLP, and is for informational purposes only. It is intended to inform our clients and other friends of the firm about current legal developments of general interest. Issues discussed should not be construed as legal advice, and listeners should not act upon the information contained in this podcast without professional counsel. In some jurisdictions, this podcast may constitute attorney advertising. The hiring of a lawyer is an important decision that should not be based solely upon advertisements. Please visit BakerLaw.com for more information about our practices and experience.